Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the GeoMob podcast. Very pleased today to be joined by Lawrence Penny. Lawrence was a speaker at our October event a few weeks ago, and uh, not just a speaker, but the winner of the uh, Splashmouth's Best Speaker Prize. He had a fantastic talk that I enjoyed quite a lot, and and so we we thought we'd get him here on the uh, podcast where he could explain it in more detail. But before we dive into that, give us a bit about your background. Welcome to the podcast, Lawrence. Tell us, tell us who you are and, and what do you do in Geo? Hi, Ed. Well, thanks for thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I enjoy listening to this podcast. I'm not a professional geographer, geo geek, or anything like that. My my real life is in font tool development, if you must know, which I also enjoy. But I've always had a side interest in geo geekery of, of many kinds. And I remember going to GeoMobs, I don't know when it started, was it 10, 12 years ago? I've been to several. Yeah, you, several you've spoken then. several times. You spoke many years ago as well, didn't you? Yeah, I, I that was a... I don't remember I the exact a, topic, but... I had a project going that I called SnapMap, which was to try and... It was the idea was to gather interesting historical photographs and and place them place them on maps, but not just place them with a pin. Also, try and set up the exact pose of that photo, and then set up some fly fly through animations from one photo to another. That was really fun to explore for a while, and I've since then I got into what I call one dimensional maps, where I try and think if sort of a combination of data visualization and and geography sort of what is the relationship between those things that's been fun to explore as that well was, I, I remember you came and you actually had one of these early early wristwatch maps that someone you know the idea was for when the first cars came out there was kind of like a map that on your wrist that you could kind of scroll along and and it would show you from the perspective of as you're going down the road there, at that time because yeah, there, there, no there were some fantastic yeah. devices um i unf- unfortunately didn't i don't have that one i do have one a little bit later which you would install in your car and it like a a roll of film into a camera. You'd install this r- map exactly, on rolls yeah. into a gadget, which was connected to your speedometer cable. So it would actually drive the oh, map forward as so, you drove. So as you it, would roll, it would do the rolling for you. Yeah. So this was in the early 1930s, and they did many thousands of miles of roads in Italy were covered with this system. Unfortunately, I guess all the devices are scrapped when the car was scrapped. So I, I've never come across a, the gadget, but I've, ma- I've managed to find a collection of the, the roles, which I'm delighted to have. Very, very nice, folks. I think, I think we've firmly established your GeoGeek credentials then <laughs> with, um, with those talks. So let's get into your, your most recent talk, which, which also is, I have to say, pretty far along on the GeoGeek spectrum. So, so your, your talk was entitled Ptolemy and the First Geospatial Database. And where you where you talked about one of the oldest known geodatabases in history, or possibly possibly even the oldest. And and with the thing that I thought was most interesting about it when when going into the talk, I wasn't really sure what to expect, but it truly was a database in like a, you know columns of text and things, and not just a map or or a kind of qualitative description of a place. So dive in, tell us tell us about this. Well, yeah, I think it's it's certainly the right word to use. A, a previous you know. Renaissance scholars and uh, 19th century scholars wouldn't have used that word because the word didn't really exist. But more recently, people do start to use that word, which is because we think of data as being an abstract thing that can be represented in any number of digital 
manifestations. We, it is co- definitely correct to call it a database. He knew what he was doing by collecting the rather messy data that his predecessors had collected, which was very, very useful to him. But it wasn't systematic. He knew that he had this idea of data of, of database columns, database rows, the difference between those two things. And, 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 and so he, he created a physical, like a piece of a scroll or something where he wrote down all this information that he got from yeah, sailors or from... He had one main source, one main source who was a guy called Marinos of Tyre, who'd probably lived 30, 40 years before Ptolemy. Doubtful they ever met, but Ptolemy discusses the data collection methods of Marinos in the first part of his, of his geography and lists various deficiencies in Marin, Marinos's working methods such that he, would, he, wouldn't, he wasn't systematic. He'd get certain information about some cities then get the other different information about other cities. There were lots of conflicts, like well, that you know things that didn't didn't make sense if if you took one part of Marinos' data, right. compared it with another part of data, his data. So Ptolemy took all this data and reconciled it by he must have drawn. I guess he drew thousands of diagrams of test sketches to to see what what would make sense and made lots of guesses. Most of them good a few of them incorrect, obviously, that would allow him to come up with one definitive latitude and longitude for every city. Right, that, that was so that's it. He had the concept of longitude and latitude. I mean, did, did he invent that concept or, or they that had already been in operation or no, do we know? Or what? No, Marinos talks about that. And Eratosthenes used the idea of latitude to, uh, in terms of measuring shadows of the sun in order to take a make a pretty good estimate of the a very good estimate of the circumference of the circumference of the world the size of the globe so latitude is well known and and well uh, and measurable well longitude yeah that was known as the other way you had to the other dimension you had to measure and it was clear that was much more difficult to get an accurate reading of that but those two fact th- those two axes if you will those two measures were well established as how you would plot where the stars were. So there were star charts where you had okay. a thousand stars, thousand or twenty-two stars that were the, the, that's the entirety of the visible stars, and they all had effectively their latitude and longitude. So it was by analogy with what was already established for hundreds of years astronomically that you apply that same principle to the innermost sphere, which is. The Earth itself, and the purpose of Ptolemy's database was was practical in terms of as a, as a navigation aid and things, or was it more just theoretical in terms of expanding kind of the boundaries of knowledge? I, that's a really interesting question. I think I think you could write you could, you could come out with many different theories about the purpose of it, and the the thing I proposed in my talk was perhaps sort of fanciful, but it, one has to face the idea that maybe the most practical use of that data, and I use practical in, in modern days, we'd use yeah. the word quotes around the, the word practical, was astrologically practical. I see. So what would these coordinates about where you were born or where you were proposing to perform some action, let's say, go to war or something, what did, what did it mean, the your coordinates of that location? What did it mean astrologically? And unless you had an accurate location, you, you might make the wrong decisions because you'd got your location wrong. Now, I'm not saying right. that's the only reason Ptolemy 
made this list. Of, of course, there were there, there must have been practical applications and people who wanted decent maps. But don't forget, a map of this size, of a world map scale, that's not particularly useful for, for military purposes. And that's where the big budget would have been. And the big budgets would have been producing you know, maps for battle campaigns. I'm pretty sure they would have existed. For trading purposes, the sailors would have known those routes pretty well already, I think. And so would the traders on land. So it's not so clear to me that a map, which to, to us today looks, you know, essential if you're going to do any, any, any world trade or anything like that. I, I'm not so sure it'd be useful. And in any case, the map doesn't show you the winds. The map doesn't show you mountain ranges. Right. These things are absolutely vital if you're actually going to take some goods from one part of the world to another, or take an army from one part of the world to another. You have to know the features on the ground. You have to have local knowledge. So the Romans, the Romans were very clear about that. They came up with a, the most famous map that comes from the Roman world, the Poitina, the Tabula Poitingeriana, is a completely different concept of mapping the world, and it's more like a London Underground tube dive. I don't know mm. if you've, I don't know if you know it, but it's this very long, eleven meter long, by about sixty centimeters high. Yeah, it's I think totally, I've seen totally so. squashed down and, and looks really impractical. But in fact, you can imagine using that to move goods around, to move armies around, because it's it doesn't lead you over mountains and it has the, the distances between cities marked. So it, actually, that's a more practical map, but even though it's to us it looks a complete, a completely um, distorted thing. One point that I thought was quite interesting in your talk is, you know, Ptolemy in his, his geography, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't just, you know, a, a list of places and coordinates or whatever. It was actually, you know, quite advanced in terms of talking about things like projections and things like that. I mean, it, it was really... Maybe you can expand on that a little bit. I mean, that the so yeah, it, it's really really it, advanced. The it really the was a manual. So he he knows he has to provide the data. So you're not just it's not just a complete abstract exercise. So there's these eight eight thousand places, and then there's the this these three well four different projections he's talking about. So first of all, the simple one of how to do a a relatively local map, which is just equirectangular, which was well known by by others. And then he talks about how to make an impression of a spherical object on the plane. He knows that's, that is a useful thing to do. And he talks about the impracticality of building large globes. That that's actually a, is a rather difficult thing to do. A plane, you can, you can put it on any wall. Any wall is a plane. You can engrave it or paint it and contemplate the whole thing at once. You can't really contemplate a globe all at once without moving around it or spinning it, spinning it around. So he mentions these disadvantages of globes. So he, he a flat map, you can maybe roll it up. You know, there are, it is a really practical, practical thing. So then what happened with all this knowledge? The, you know, this knowledge of projections, this database? What, what well, I should, say, lost, I should say a little was... more about projections, that he, he definitely ex advanced the art in advanced the mathematics of, of projections in, in that he develops, he, he sets up three different world projections. First of all, one that keeps the, the, the meridians straight and curved, curves the parallels, and then curves both. And then finally, he's getting very close to a, a perspective projection by his third projection. Mm. And perhaps 
he knows what a perspective projection would be, but he draws, he sort of pulls back from saying, here's how to do a complete perspective projection, because then it becomes more like a globe again, that you would have to spin it around to see the right. sides properly. So he avoids the perspective projection. And even his globe-like projection is actually more useful than a, a real perspective projection would be because of his interesting distortions on that. Sorry, your your next point was what? It's just fascinating how much knowledge they had then, and you know. But then, what happened to it? Where did where, you know he wrote it down and it got stuffed into some you know monastery somewhere, or it, it? It's yeah. Records are so few that we we can't we can't say. I think Ptolemy did everything he could to to help preservation. In in that, the number one thing you you need to do back then to make sure a document was preserved was to make it. Represent well, represented as text. So if he had drawn lots of wonderful maps and, and expected those to be copied directly, he knew very well that they would, you know, by the sort of entropic effects of copying and copying and copying, that would not be started, reliable. That's yeah. not a good way of, of preserving knowledge for the long term. So converting things into text, making everything super clear in this database format, essentially, was the way to make things preservable. I think what he didn't do was establish, I mean, this is a massive thing to ask, establish a kind of, establish it as part of the, the state machinery, I guess, to, to have an update mechanism. How do you incorporate changes to his data? Wow, this is the endless thing, man. It's, it's very easy to, to, this is the debate in OpenStreetMap. It's easy to map the neighborhood who's going to yeah, update it. Yeah, so I, I, I'm sure there must have been lots of people discovering updates, errors, that needed to be fixed, but it wasn't clear how to do that. And of course, plenty of people would enjoy keeping that knowledge to themselves anyway. So, right. yeah, for their own commercial or military. Well, this must have been reasons. highly strategic information, you know, to know how to get where, who's where, and how do I get there? And, oh, yeah, absolutely. When you, you know. get to medieval and Renaissance times, a lot of those maps are kept secret. You know, it's it's terrible if your ship goes down, a ship is captured. The first thing you destroy just before being captured are the, are the maps. Yeah. So I think the other interesting thing about its preservation is that its, that it's state now is, is pretty much reckoned to be its state back then. So I think there's a point at which it becomes a revered semi-sacred object in itself that there's no way you would incorporate any changes to it because then, because you're aware you're, you're, you're somehow polluting the purity of this ancient thing. And because it, Ptolemy is also documenting the heavens, there's also this yeah. that aspect of sacredness, you know, uh, that kind gets incorporated. Aspect to it. Exactly. It gets incorporated into the official Catholic view of, of of cosmology that includes the earth. That becomes unsustainable with the discoveries of the 15th century, of course, and then the two sets of maps have to diverge. In a, in, a, in a 16th century atlas, you get the antique maps, which are Ptolemy's, and then the modern maps, which are all updated. But they they keep Ptolemy's maps in there for a while. Well, this is a this is a point as as often happens here on the podcast. I I do invite the listener to this is a talk where seeing is also believing in terms of you had so many great screenshots of maps and things in your talk. So I really encourage people, you can, everyone can go, of course, on our website and see the YouTube version of your talk. And you had some really fantastic maps. I mean, both actual like old maps, but also 
I, I love that representation where someone had taken the coordinates from Ptolemy's database and then rendered them as a map, you know, and of the British Isles and so on. And of course, it was slightly distorted and, uh, you know, as you would describe, but you, it was recognizable. It was right, really most, recognizable. Most was, of those, you can tell they're modern renderings. They were done by that uh, Swiss uh, research group. I mistakenly referred to them as a German research group, um, which I, I got a little note from the research team after, after the talk about that. So that was the, the Bern research group. <laughs> that's a wonderful work, uh, especially even more so if you can read. German. So that's they are produced those maps directly from Ptolemy's data, with you know, not with reference to any any any, but, I mean, any that's maps. Fantastic, because he was. I mean, you know, he was in Greece, and and you know that it, it's an actual map of the British Isles, a, a recognizable representation of the British Isles. You know, distorted and whatever, but you know, you can see Scotland. You can see. I mean, it's that's amazing. Yep. Yep, and so the, his integration of all these tales from different, from completely different sets of sources, from some written, and I, I think there's a re- pretty good chance he was he had real discussions, maybe conferences, with sailors, traders in Alexandria, Egypt, not Greece, by the way. All right, okay, yeah. So, so, so what you can imagine him down in the harbor interrogating, you know, captains as they come in and stuff, and maybe that, not as casual possible? as that, but yeah, organizing. Uh, a conference about this sort of thing, yeah. Saying, yeah, hey, huh. we've got to get this stuff documented, and we're just so that you can then have a copy of this thing to take with you on your on your voyages. Maybe, maybe, maybe commissioning some of them to come back with more accurate reports about which side of the river Indus this particular port was. That, that kind of thing. That's fascinating. I mean, there were so many gems in your talk, like the fact that their their meridian was the Canary Islands, because that was kind of the you know, that's where zero started because that was kind of the edge of their world. Fascinating. I mean, yeah, I, I, mean honestly, I, I wouldn't have known. I would not have known that, that they, they had knowledge spanning, yeah, from India all the way to the Canary Islands. I mean, the cool thing about fantastic. putting it over there in the West is that you avoid negative numbers. Right. For your, for your longitude. So I guess we should we should tell the listeners though about your effort now to digitize this database. You know that you've got it up, but you've taken the data and put it up on on GitHub. At least some portion of it. Share share us a bit about that. Well, look at um, digitized versions of the Bible. Um, not because I'm a particularly a kind of any kind of biblical scholar, but I've been impressed with websites that show all the hundreds and hundreds of well thousands of different editions of the Bible. How you can look up a chapter and verse, a book, a chapter and a verse, and find it in any language, in any edition that has ever come out. I think that's a a wonderful, amazingly respectful thing to do for a really important ancient book. Now, by comparison with the geography, we have, this is really, really difficult. We don't have, we don't have this. We do have the the very good basis of that you could build that kind of thing on, which is that Swiss-German research, which does have this database. Now, that was produced in 2006, and there are some issues with character encoding and things like that that are relatively minor. That could become, so that database could become the basis for this kind of thing. Currently, it's not licensed, though, like that. So my publishing this... Uh, so my, wait, my own... Ptolemy, Ptolemy didn't make it an open data, is what you're saying, <laughs> or he... Uh... Um, he was more of a closed well, data guy. Or? He didn't specify, and we've not. We don't have much knowledge about what Greek, what ancient Roman law says about the how long this copyright is, this lasted. Is always, always the problem. People, people just dive into the project and they don't take the time to think through the license. So, so I thought I would just put something on on GitHub based on a 
copy of uh, Geography I I have myself. So I started typing in some columns. I, I haven't got very far so far, so far, but it's a it's meant to be a provocative act that we need that the world needs such a thing just so that people can play with the data. That's all I think should happen initially. People see what the data is and put it on a slippy map, put it on leaflet, map box, this kind of thing. And for the, cool. for the first time, scroll around, zoom in and out. I don't, think any, I don't know if anyone's ever done this with autonomous data. This seems sure. a great gap in our geographic experimenting. Very cool. Absolutely be certain to get the URL to that up in the, uh, in the show notes so that any, anyone out there listening should dive in and, and start assisting. I heard uh, just yesterday from uh, Dr. Heiner Hohner uh, of, the, of the Bern uh, Research Group in Switzerland that he, is, uh, he, is act- he has just asked his publisher about that very thing. So it may be that their academically respectable database be- could become the basis for this. So that would be, that'd be wonderful if the publisher agrees to that. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Please, please keep us updated. That would be very interesting indeed. Okay, you know, our time is drawing to a close, but what conclusions can we reach here? What, what's the takeaway from all this for the listener? I, I think it's, it, it's just fascinating in its own right to find out how much the ancients knew about science in general and uh, geography in particular. One thing I didn't have time to mention in the talk was, uh, if, I don't know if you go back and have a look at where I'm talking about that temple of Venus and Rome in Rome, and it's got that half dome at the top of it. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. If you look at the patterns on that, it's got these diamond patterns in the roof that, and the diamonds gradually get smaller and smaller. It's a very elegant pattern. And if, if you watch, there's kind of spirals that yeah. delineate kind these, of like a, these diamonds. Kind of Fibonacci kind of spiral thing. Well, yeah. and after you've had a look at that, go and take a look at uh, maybe Mark Snyder's book on map projections. And he explains how Mercator drew what are called loxodromes on his globes because he was fascinated by tracing lines of similar bearing. So if you draw a diagonal line at the equator and keep going at a similar heading, let's say, northeast, you get a spiral that ends up at the North Pole. And if you draw other loxodromes, you get a load of diamond shapes. So it's I was suddenly struck by the resemblance of these Roman patterns and patterns that Mercator would have been drawing on on globes, and it just it just occurred to me that hey, did the Romans, if they thought to expand that diamond pattern into diamonds of similar shape on a pl- on the plane, they get Mercator, they get Mercator's projection. Hmm. It's just a Idle, it's idle speculation, I guess, but it's there's a, an awful lot to be stimulated about. Uh, the, the Ptolemy's Geography edition by Bergman and Jones that I mentioned in the talk, I highly recommend that to anyone who's at all interested in the, in this stuff. It it's, doesn't contain the complete data for that. You need to go for the for the Swiss edition, but it's got a brilliant introduction, modern introduction, and then the translation itself is is readable, and you really get what. Ptolemy is trying to communicate in the chapters that, that Ptolemy introduces his data and methods with. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I mean, I liked about your talk quite a bit is that, I mean, first of all, amazing visuals, very interesting topic, several aha moments where you're like, oh my God, I had no idea. But then, yeah, also then you provide the the relevant background so that the people who are more interested can go deep 
And I encourage any listener out there who, you know, where if, if this if got you interested, by all means, do go deep. Very cool. I mean, it's just mind blowing how much these guys knew back then and, and how advanced they were. I mean, the the general perception that the ancients thought the world was flat, that's that's still a sort of general assumption, I find. It's it's yeah. really which was totally wrong. The the maybe kids did, but I it was it was it was well understood. Right. Right. Well, you showed several, you know, amazingly carved marble statues of, you know, Atlas holding, literally holding the globe. So obviously they knew. Very cool. Lawrence, thank you so much for coming on the show here and, and talking with us and, and for your talk in general. How can people get in touch with you if they'd like to learn more? I have a, my GitHub is LORP. That's my initials, L-O-R-P. So I'm findable there. My email is L-O-R-P at L-O-R-P.org. Twitter is LORP again. So any reactions? Yeah, keep them, keep them coming. And we'll get all that in the show notes. My apologies. Let's, I realize we skipped our, our standard closing question for anyone who's a longtime Geomob regular. Any, any particular Geomob memories that stand out for you over the years? Oh, yeah. I've, okay. Any talks you particularly enjoyed? Any, I, um, I, I had a big gap until lockdown, so I haven't been to many recently. I remember being impressed by a, a woman who presented. She presented the accessibility of every public toilet in London, which I thought was an amazing <laughs> project. And it was encouraging people to contribute their own knowledge of every toilet in the world. I thought that is sure. a, that just shows the variety of practical uses of, of geo-geekery. Well, if ever if ever there's a need that unites all of us, Lawrence, surely she tapped into it there. Um, no, it's true. I mean, it, it, those, are, those are actually some of my favorite talks, the ones where it's just, yeah. you know, you find these, find these people who have some weird thing that they're really into and they, they come and share it. And then usually in the beginning, you're like, okay, what is that all about? And then it starts going deeper and deeper and you're like, holy shit, that, you know, there's actually quite a lot of interesting aspects to this. And it, they all, that was a fascinating talk, I, I recall. Oh, yeah. cool. And the drinking afterwards in the pub. That's um, that's always very enjoyable too. <laughs> there again, we're in agreement, Lawrence. So, excellent. Excellent. Thanks very much for coming on the show. And uh, yeah. Thanks for See having me. Soon. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks everyone for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.